Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And now, please welcome Melvin and Mario Van Peebles. <laughs> Melvin, your f- first experience in Hollywood was um, doing comedies. I mean, of course, you did Watermelon Man. I guess you were with Universal for a while. You were signed on. There was a front-page story in Variety um, that you know Universal hired its first Negro director and that you were, you were working on a... Um, television projects. So to sort of go from that to making this film, from mainstream comedies to, you know, to making a film that was so radical both in how it was made and subject matter and all that. Well, the actual truth was um, it was my idea to do this all along, but I had to lay my, my cards or do my pretend in 1957, I started making short films in San Francisco because um, I I was tired of seeing what I was seeing in the in the theater. It was just that simple. However, the images of blacks, you mean on screen? Yeah, the images yeah. of minorities, Yasinosa, and always humming with the Bible. They didn't they didn't have any resonance with any of the people that I knew growing up in the hood in Chicago and elsewhere around the, around America. And so I wanted to change all that. And I set myself the task to changing that. Of course, when I made my first films, I went down to Hollywood, and um, they offered me a job, but as an elevator operator. And I said, no, I don't want to, I want to really be in front of the camera or doing creative things, and that was, they offered me a job as a dancer. Anyway, long story short, I, I went to Holland, and through another fluke that's too long to go into here, my short films that had been turned down in, in Hollywood were seen in France, and France invited me to come to France. Mm-hmm. So I came to France, and um, I taught myself French, and there's a French law that a French writer can get a director's card. So I wrote some novels in French and then asked for a director's card. And so I got a director's card. So after I got the director's card, but n- my objective was always the same. After I got a director's card, I won the San Francisco Film Festival as a French delegate. Had a lot of funny stories, but too long to go into that were <laughs> surrounding that. But Hollywood was immensely embarrassed by having the only black um, American director, a French director. And so it was at that juncture that the first crack actually happened in Hollywood. I was given job offers, but if I'd taken those job offers, I felt that they would have the one Negro threat under wraps and no one else would ever get a shot. So I refused, and it's that juncture that um, Gordon um, Parks and Ozzie Davis were discovered. Right. And um, then I said I would, would do something in Hollywood. I would do a film if I could shoot it in Hollywood and set up on locations that the other two films had to be done. And that film was Watermelon Man. Then after I made Watermelon Man, I had a three-picture deal with Columbia for other films. And it was at that juncture that Badass takes over. I I used my my muscle, uh, what little bit of it I had, and my understanding of, of Hollywood to 
to make the film. That's, but it was not a, it was not a departure at all. Yeah. I had to do the steps I had to do to get to where I wanted to go. Yeah. And I just love to hear a little bit more. Uh, I love the ending of the film, the success the movie has at the theater in Detroit. It goes to number one film, and at the time it was number one in the country. It was actually only on less than 20 screens. I mean, it was such a different time than now where every movie goes out on thousands of screens, it seems. Yeah, it only opened. There were only two theaters in the United States that would show it at yeah. the opening. But, you know... But it did I very must... well. It, it broke all the records oh, at this it, Detroit it, it, theater. Exactly as Mario showed in Badass. That yeah. is, um, the, first, the first showing, two people came in and two people walked out and asked for their money back, the lady and her mama. Second screen, there was nobody. And the third screening was what you saw with lines around the block and everything. Just how it happened. I mean, just like every now and then God gets it right. Not that often, but every now and then. <laughs> From your perspective at that time as a 13-year-old, you know, uh, I guess you had a pretty um, bohemian upbringing and uh, you, know, you had some idea of, of the politics of the film and what was going on. Uh, but what, what, would, what did it look like to you in terms of how important this film was or what the film was trying to do? This was my first time really spending this kind of time with my dad. And my dad had been in France climbing the cinematic mountain, as he said. And so this was my summer with Pop. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was working on this movie. And uh, we, you know, you saw it, I thought. I mean, we didn't always get along. Yeah. But what happened was, as time went on, I saw what he was up against. And it's almost as if... Um, it's almost as if you and I have our differences, but if this theater were to catch on fire our differences would be eclipsed by a bigger event, that we've mm -hmm. got to get out of a theater that's on fire. Mm -hmm. And if we get out and we decide to put ourselves in harm's way to come back in and help other folks get out, yeah. then you know something about my character in a very short <laughs> period of time, and I know something about you. Yeah. And in that short period of time of that summer, I got to learn a lot about him because he insisted that his crew looked like America. You know, he, he, a third of the crew hadn't seen a camera. There was like film school. So they had, you know, women and Hispanics and Asians and black folks and white folks together. As time went on, it sort of, the dynamic switched, and I think I, I, I thought that I, wa I wanted to help. And when your dad starts getting death threats for what he believes in, and yeah. it, it eclipses all the other, well, well, you put me in a sex scene, or I could right. have cut my fro, or you gave away that bike. <laughs> so you were working some things out with your dad at this time yeah I mean as I, you know, it's a trip as I look at the film now on some levels it's like therapy you could eat popcorn too you know. <laughs> actually if you, you should make the film from Mario's viewpoint now somehow yeah and you play me <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> okay <laughs> Are most of the incidents in the film based on real life? I mean, one, one little thing that, that jumped out was the rope scene. I thought that was so interesting. Absolutely, man. That, that happened down to the pistol in the prop box, um, the, the secretary who knew Maurice White. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. And we, not only the, were the incidents real, but we went back to some exact locations. The film where we, the yeah. part where we shot when Melvin goes into that proverbial looking glass and the whole world becomes oh, black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's all shot on the street that uh, he lived on. The actual very same street we shot in the Crenshaw district Th there's a little place that time forgot right yeah. behind the Magic Johnson theater if you know LA that's LA's hood and I had gone out uh, you know on the weekend because I now had an actor playing the lead who wouldn't give me any shit and knew his lines so I could abuse him and that was me and I was running through the hood I had that <laughs> same unfortunate pimpy gold outfit <laughs> that my dad wore 
And um, I told my DP, okay, get ready. My DP, 63-year-old cat, he, had the, he was in the car. I signaled him. I start running through, and there's people walking around. And this one brother looked up from drinking his ripple and looks up and says, <laughs> Sweetback's back! <laughs> Look! <laughs> the brother came back just like he said. <laughs> it was That's great. I had to wait 30 years. Oh, but he, 30 years but, later, yeah. man. The kind of stuff that would happen daily was just... I would yell cut, and my whole crew would cut, but I was yelling cut as Melvin, not as Mario. So, so, yeah, so it, was, <laughs> it, was a mirror, it was a hall of mirrors, man. So did you have to work out two different types of cut or two different words? Yeah, eventually we got it right, Okay, but it took a minute. <laughs> and and um, obviously the, you, the film you made, you know, mirrors Sweet Sweetback. I mean, sometimes it looks and acts like your dad's film. And also I guess the production circumstances were somewhat similar. Yeah, I thought maybe... Maybe I'd get the edge this time, 30 years later, but backstory is I was on Ali, and Michael Mann's directing me and to play Malcolm X, Brother Malcolm X, and I'm spending time with Malcolm's eldest daughter, and growing up with my dad was kind of like growing up with a big fish, because you don't know what stories are live and which ones are kind of Memorex. But, so he had told me that he'd interviewed Malcolm when my dad was a journalist in France. He did. Turns out he did. So I'm sitting down with him, you know, asking about Malcolm, and it starts to hit me that Malcolm had said, if they don't want you in their restaurant, build your own restaurant. And mm-hmm. my dad had said, basically, if they don't want you in their movies, build your own movies. So mm-hmm. I, I'd grown up in a sort of independent, by any means necessary, filmmaking family. And uh, so I thought about doing this. I started thinking about doing this story, and, and Ali would come up to me and ask questions about my dad. Hmm. You know, like, is your daddy still getting some? <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, so I, I, and we thought about if Ali was the, the, the first athlete to use the ring, not just to box, but to stand for something. Right. My dad used the silver screen, not just to make movies, but to stand yeah. for something. And so all the ideas started going. I started going, wow, let's do this. But my dad had, when I went to see him, and he has the book. It was sitting there. It was getting dusty, the making of. And I thought, well, he's going to give it to me. He loves me. So I said, what do you think? <laughs> I want to do your story. You know, this mm. is a very flattering thing to say yeah. to your father. He says, great. I don't want to get screwed on the deal. Option the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And, uh, and then his only note was, don't make me too damn nice. So I'll tell you, I mean, the circumstances I had to make the movie under after that, after going to the studios and getting turned down, were I had to shoot it in 18 days. Wow. So that's what you saw. That's less than Sweetback? <laughs> that's one, but I had technology on my side. Okay. So. <laughs> now, uh, you, you talked about Muhammad Ali. Uh, Bill Cosby appears in the few to- a few times, and, and obviously um, you had a strong friendship with him. I think people sometimes forget how much of a breakthrough figure, figure he was. I mean, just the fact that he was on I Spy at a time when there was, I, mean, I think it was the first black and a dramatic, major dramatic role on television. But if you could talk a bit about your um, friendship with him and what, what he meant to cult- black culture. Well, actually, um, I didn't know Bill that well because the I Spy and all that time, I wasn't in the United States. Yeah. I was in Europe. However, um, I directed one of his, his um, episodes when he was a teacher at a high school. He had a, and that's how we got to know each other. Hmm. And because there, weren't, there wasn't any other black director around in Hollywood, and um, he was very nice to me. And when the crew got arrested... Um, I was really in deep doo-doo 
And um, I called him. Hmm. And um, he came through. Hmm. This was an episode of, the, of his 60s series? Um, or it, 69 or yeah. 70, something like that. He was doing something where he was a high school teacher. Yeah. That was a, a short-lived um, a series that he was on, and I, I directed one of those episodes. Hmm. And, um, and he had specifically asked that I direct one of the episodes, trying to be helpful to, to give me a, a foothold, and I remembered his kindness. You're, you've made films that try to tell history as it really happened, and you're also trying to make stories that are entertaining. Is there a clash between those two things for you? Hmm. You know what? We were on the Floating Film Festival with Roger Ebert, and it won the Critics Award. And my dad and I have been now hanging out together a lot. <laughs> it's been a trip. It's fun, but you've got to be careful what you ask for. So we're on the, we're in the, we're on the boat, and we sh we have, I have my little bunk here. I have, he's got his little bunk there. And... Uh, he comes in at 2 in the morning with his cigar lit. I'm like, where do you go on a ship until 2 in the morning? <laughs> and, I, and I looked up at my dad and I thought, you know. Long live Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm getting ready to, to go, man. And then I said, you know what? I want to thank you for living a life that is so colorful. And so, you know, that I could make two or three movies on this cat and not run out. So I think, I think sometimes... You, you, you come to places where you, you want to figure it out, and I think that I, I would go more the historical route, but if it, you can play the drama a number of different ways. In the case of Badass, if you read the book, it's pretty spot on. And once I put in the testimonials and my sort of remembering it as a kid, my POV, it wasn't a hard film to make. It really came through me like kids come through you and not from you. You know what I mean? Posse was more of a place where there were a lot of black towns like that that existed, and we, were, we, were, we, we had a different sort of form. It was sort of a bigger-than-life Western. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Panther was more you know, straight in there um, and based on his book again. So I, I, don't, I haven't you know, come to a lot of places where I thought, well, if I, if I go this way, there's a problem. Now, again, it also depends on the time period you take. Like, like in Panther, we took the early years, in New Jack City, that wasn't hard because it was a fictional character, but it's based right on Nicky Barnes and Felix Mitchell and Rafael Edmonds. So, you know, I was able to do things, but based on those real-life situations, the whole betrayal, the whole incarceration, and he was on the cover of New York Times as Mr. Untouchable. So it varies in each case. This one actually was easy. When my dad saw it in Toronto, the first time my dad saw it, we're at the Sundance, and we're at the festival in, in Toronto, there's 600 other people in the audience, and to sit next to your dad while he watches you play him? Wow. And, I, and there's that scene where he's in bed with Bill, and I let the camera just hang a little bit. You know? <laughs> he gave me a look like, what the fuck? <laughs> but at the end of the movie, you know, people were on, you know, applauding, and I said, what do you think? They said, well, it's like Seabiscuit on two legs. <laughs> you know? But this really had that thing, because at, at the core of it really was... This cat with an impossible dream opens in two theaters. The customers demand their money back, and it becomes the top-grossing independent hit up till that time. So not just for black film, for all independent film. And it's a pretty amazing story, and it's a story that seems to get left, left out. It le got left out of uh, Peter Biskin's book. It's interesting that it changed so much, and sometimes we forget where, what happened. And after he made Sweetback, you know, Cosby has that line in the movie where he says, they get three strikes at the plate, we only get one. Even when you win, 
if you don't win on their terms. He mm-hmm. never got another job offer hmm. after Sweetback. Never. And, and Sweetback was never distributed foreign to this day. So it's pretty amazing when you look at it, uh, you know. Even during that period of the... Uh, because obviously the success of the film got Hollywood interested in making black films, but they didn't want to make that kind of film. Well, you what they did, say with Sweetback, yeah. um, when we were shooting that, at the end of Sweetback, when it made all that money, the MGM was preparing a, doing the pre-production of a detective story, a white detective. So they stopped the pre-production and recast it for black, and that detective was Shaft. Hmm. Shaft was originally a white detective. They, they, they saw the money, but what they did do, they took the political core out of the movie and added a little more cartoonish, and um, that became um, what we now call black exploitation. So they saw that the market was there, but they didn't want... The message well, you, you, you have you to understand that up to that time, um, a black character who showed any dignity never lived to the to the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, he always ended up with some white guy praying over him, saying, "Well, we hope one day America will change." And da da da. Meantime, he was dead, right? Hmm? For example, there was no um, black male up to that time who had a movie in a movie with facial hair. If he had facial hair, it was like mine is beginning to turn gray. Do you know what I mean? There are all of these things. I remember so well the second place the movie opened was in Atlanta, and the, one of the two theaters, and it opened on a Friday. And I walk into the theater, and I'm talking to the, the theater owner, um, and I said, and I apologized for the theater being empty, and I told him I hoped what would happen, what had happened in in Detroit would happen there. And the guy said, oh, no, the theater's full. Hmm. The word had already gotten down. However, Atlanta had just desegregated, and I guess the, the blacks were a little shy about being too, um, too vocal. They were all sitting there in the theater. And I, I found a seat next to an old black lady. And she says, Lord, hmm? Sweetback's in the desert now. Just let him die. Let him die out there, Lord. Let him die out there. Don't let them kill him. Hmm. Because it was unthinkable that we, we was going to live through the end of the movie. I mean, that was just off the record. And this, this, this may be hard to visualize now. But those things didn't happen. A black movie was not shown first run, any of them. They always had a second feature with it because mm-hmm. the word was your people didn't want to go to just one movie. I said, my response was, how do you know? You never showed them anything they wanted to see. Hmm? And but that uh, Sweetback changed all that. However, I think outside of simply the racial angle, the fact that the film was an independent film, which was very, very poorly viewed at, in Hollywood at the time, had a lot to do with my reception. Because you see, if, any, if a film could be made independently, Hollywood had maintained you had to have seven dialogue coaches and 
five this and 20s of that. Hmm. Th that put a lot of people out of work. Here I come with a ukulele and a unicycle and make this movie doing all this. A lot of people got egg on their face. So that, hmm. wasn't, that wasn't very well appreciated. Hmm. It's interesting because <clears throat> 30 years later when I went to do Badass and I sent the script out, there was no head of any studio and there's no head of any studio now who's a woman and no head of any studio who's a minority. So you kind of go into that same jury that's not of your peers. It doesn't mean that they're not well-read and interesting folks, but there's a certain cultural bias. So they'll tell you what you, what, what you should make and what, what yeah. your people want to see. And the first set of notes I got was, well, your dad changed the game for independent film, so make the film more for a sort of intelligentsia film, uh, film audience. I said, well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. And then the second studio said, no, 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 this is clearly going to appeal to black folks. And the last one that made money may was this, so make it more hip-hop barbershop. Right. Make it more comedic like that. So well, that's, again, not it. And, and this, the other studio said, well, it's too political, it's too sexy. And all of them said, you've got to make Melvin more of a likable character. He's got to be likable. And... You know, I found him likable, didn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I thought, well, here's a guy from the south side of Chicago who's got the French Legion of Honor award. He, he, he's, he's pissed off at systemic isms, isms, sexism and racism, but he's not mad at people. Mm -hmm. And his, his crew was like everybody. So, and his life was sexy and tragic and comedic and multiracial. And it became a marketing thing where they're saying, well, we've got to slot it. How are we going to slot it? If it's not lost in translation and it's not soul plane, you know, what do we do with this? Yeah. And, and so I wound up saying, okay, I made New Jack in 36 days, the other films in about 40, and that's when I had to shoot this in 18. And it was interesting because then you see who's really about the project. Suddenly, Michael Mann, whose first movie that he saw in his uh, first white date, date movie he saw with his wife was Sweetback. Yeah. And he's still married, so I guess, you know, <laughs> it was a good date movie. And uh, so he came on as our executive producer. Hmm. And uh, uh, Ozzie Davis called me up and said, I'll play your father's father. I said, I don't have a hotel for you. I can't afford a hotel. He said, clean up your house. Hmm. So he stayed Shave Van People. So suddenly you're doing a film in the spirit of the original, yeah. and it's... It's an amazing thing to play a director of a fierce independent while you're directing a fierce independent. I found that I had to really literally start to walk a mile in this guy's shoes. And, but I didn't have people shooting at me. And it was interesting also to note that the reason that I could now get a multiracial crew that was in the union was because yeah. he did what he did. Huh. And, yeah. and uh, just how have you seen the climate change for yourself as a filmmaker? Because, of the, you know, the, at the time of New Jack City, it was, I guess, a little bit after uh, Boys in the Hood, and there was... There was a market for films, but um, there were filmmakers who complained that the only kind of movie you were allowed to make was an urban film, and it had to be violent because it had to appeal to a certain audience. So how have you seen things um, change or not change over your, the years for yourself? Well, it's, it's interesting because I've seen it sort of bi-generationally and partly by osmosis. But I think it's no accident that when my dad did Sweetback's Badass Song and then the studios sort of took that genre and wore it, in, wore it out after a while, there were a bunch of kids that saw those movies that didn't know the Hollywood dream wasn't supposed to be for us. So me and the Singletons and Spike and the Hudlins and, and you know, Julie Dash, a lot of folks were suddenly seeing the possibility of this. So 20 years later, you have this, uh, this new, new generation in. And actually, New Jack came out before Boys in the Hood did. But um, the biggest change at that juncture was that 
you know, Wesley Snipes had been playing the funny guy and the best friend of the guy, but never the guy. We were never the supporting guy. If they right. wanted a funny guy in Major League, they got Wesley. If they wanted a funny guy in Heartbreak Ridge, I was lucky enough that Clint uh, picked me. And, um, and if they wanted a f best friend, they got Larry Fishburne. But we were never the leading guy. And it was only after we started directing and I went back to talk to my dad and reread his book on the making of Sweetback that I decided to put my acting on hold and start directing. Clint had introduced me to the folks at Warner Brothers, which is how I got to do New Jack City. When I got to do New Jack, I went to Wesley and said, hey, you can be in this film as the guy. You don't have to crack jokes. You don't have to be the best friend of the lead. You will be, you know, our guy. And Singleton did the same thing with Larry Fishburne a little later in Boys in the Hood. And then, of course, what Spike did with uh, Denzel and Malcolm by not doing it as the, from the point of view of the journalist, but from Malcolm's point of view. When those films made money, as Hollywood, and my dad had said, Hollywood has an Achilles pocketbook. <laughs> Suddenly then, we were able to play lead. So they put mm -hmm. Wesley in Passenger 57 as a lead, even though it wasn't written black. And they put uh, uh, Larry in Bad Company. And they put Denzel in Pelican Brief. And when they weren't available, I was in an interesting position because I was also an actor. So they came to me and said, well, this, you know, scripts were written for Stallone, but you can shave your head and grow some muscles, and you could be Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and, and so we slowly changed the game, but I had to go, go back to the plan. But there definitely came a point when we realized that although the Italian directors started out with their hood flicks, Mean Streets, their equivalent of New Jacks and Boys in the Hood, they were allowed to grow as filmmakers past any films that had to be pasta intensive. Where we were being told either we had to make hip-hop comedies or shoot-em-ups. And if you didn't do one of those, you could leave, if you were chosen, and go direct films about the dominant culture, i.e. you could step out and direct Italian job, which is mm -hmm. great, and you should do that. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to make a films with, bad, with black characters, you couldn't do a Goodwill Hunting. Hmm. So that's kind of the same place. So that's when I came up with Badass. I was like, well, if I do a film about a guy who is a director, he's not an athlete, he's not a, on crack, he's not in jail, yeah. You know, what's going to happen with that? And so we'll, we're going to find out real soon. It opens May 28th in New York and L.A. You won't see big, big, big billboards. It's Sony Classics. It's two theaters, I mean, two, two cities this time, a little bit up from two theaters. But we're, we're in a <laughs> word-of-mouth situation. It's like wow. the same, same, same cake, different icing. Is the, uh, the market of straight-to-video or selling films over the inter Internet, is that creating an opportunity? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, en I don't know enough about it to say. Um, I do know this, that the, the distribution is where this, you can now make a movie, getting it distributed is a whole different deal. And it'd be great to see a viable alternative to the lockdown we have right now. But I don't, I don't know that I know the answer on that. This was made on video, shot? Parts of Ali were shot on high def. Right. And, and I watched Michael Mann make a beautiful, lush film and using this technology. Yeah. And then I directed a couple rob a robbery homicide for him. Yeah. And then we, when he came on as our exec, we talked about it. So I did, I did mostly digital and I did a little bit of 35 millimeter. Yeah, it's great looking Thank film. You. But, but did the video, uh, did that allow you to bring the budget down or was that, did that make it possible to make the film? It, it does bring the budget down. It costs, you still got to transfer it at the end. So if someone yeah. buys it at the end, they, they kind of go, hmm. Um, right. it, if, you, if you're not careful, you have a lot more f film or tape to cut. So you want to be careful because you start going, yeah, just roll it. <laughs> and that can get problematic. So you've got to watch that in the editing room that you don't indulge that way. Oh, yeah. It's good because you're not, you know, you're, you're not changed. The camera doesn't rule you the same way. 
But sometimes when you want to run a gun, you can't, you don't have the monitor. And mm -hmm. so there's, I don't want to go to the length, but there, yeah. there are downsides to it, but it's getting better. It seemed like maybe in the editing, you were able to be free or experiment, you know, in terms of the optical effects and editing. You're already in the digital realm. And that, so yeah. that lets you do that. Yeah. And the digital lets you play yeah, around more. It does. Yeah. The question is how you see the next two years shaping up. I think mainly in terms of black film is what you're asking. Well, I'll go first then. Okay. Um, that's a tricky, a tricky question for a couple reasons. One, you have to understand, be it black, white, green, or yellow, if it goes through the Hollywood system, it had to get approved by the same board of guys. So it, it, if you're going to do Charlie's Angels, then cool, they're going to debate how many kicks you should have. But if you're going to do a film about a cat and things that are important to you, some of those notes are going to turn your movie into a cinematic wonder bread, and you might have to do it independently. To the vision you saw tonight, yes, I only had 18 days, but I couldn't have bought that kind of goodwill. Do you know what I mean? When I called Cosby up, and he had that tone of like, oh, hell, are you going to ask me for a loan too, Junior? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but you can't buy that kind of goodwill. So I was able to, to, you know, to make a movie and, and, and do it uh, and really have that vision. And that's a nice free thing to have. It's going to depend on anything else. I think it depends on moments like these. Do we get out and email and talk about it and make a difference? Or do we sit back and feel helpless and wait for a booty call for there's some value in Booty Call 4, but if, if we get out, if it makes a difference, then Hollywood, like my dad always said, has an Achilles pocketbook. We're writing history right now. This is one of those moments. If it works, they'll say, oh, wow, maybe we can do a movie about this Indian sister who meets this Asian brother. And it doesn't have to be just white and black and green. What's been so hip is that it, it you know, just won the Critics Award with Roger Ebert, and those folks were 80 and from from Florida, and yet the, the audience award in Philadelphia and, and Morehouse, you know, so it's like the, the audience is looking a lot like the crew. And that's a tricky marketing thing for them because they they're not used to, well, wait a minute, we don't know where to go with this. That's a tricky thing to do. So I think the future kind of is in our hands right now, and you saw it was there before. I have dreams where I'm like my dad in the audience and there's two people, you know, but... But uh, we'll see. It's really hard to say beyond that. I think independent film is leading the way, as usual. Uh, you know, majors tend to chase an audience, whereas independents sometimes tend to lead an audience. So I think we're going to look to independent film a lot. Dad? I'm a cockeyed optimist. And recently something's helped us a great deal, that is the digital technology. I don't know how the the barrier is going to be broken but I'm quite sure that it will right now producing is not the major barrier that it used to be right now I think the next great frontier for the independent filmmaker is the distribution and that has been alluded to a couple of times here don't know how yet that that's going to be but I think somebody's going to figure something out and if not, it's not how many times you get knocked down that counts, it's how many times you get up. Um, a bumblebee is aerodynamically unsound. He doesn't know he can, can't fly. Since he doesn't know he can't fly, he flies anyway. And that's sort of the, the way I, I approach the things. Now, you know, we've been focusing on your film, but you have a musical review that's um, on stage in, in France. You write books. You do so many other things also. Well, you know, we can get a little focused on the filmmaking, but it's, a, it's the same paradigm. It's the same 
the same battle when you're pushing the envelope a lot of times. Unfortunately for me, my work is a little, even though in the final analysis it's populist, it's a little avant-garde in the explanation. And so I find it very difficult to to get funding. When it's finished, everybody says, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. But it, it's before that, that oh, yeah part, you know what I mean, that makes it difficult. Uh, if you can't stand the, the heat of the, the oven, get out of the kitchen, you know. Why did you need the sex, the sex scene with, that Mario was in in Sweet Sweetback? Why, what, why did you need that scene? It, the sex scene wasn't any necessary than anything else. You're, you're speaking of your particular paradigm that offends you or that intrigues you. I don't know. Some people say, why did you have to um, kill the dogs? Um, everybody's got their own little thing. I, I make films like I cook. I put in what I like. In case no one likes it, I have to eat it for the rest of the week. <laughs> okay. I'm still looking for him to give me another shot at that now, though. That's it. <laughs> was it just as hard for you to get money to make this film as it was for Sweet Sweetback to be made? No, mine I think was easier, even though I only had a, you know loosely a million dollars, right? Because <clears throat> what I did have, I had an advantage in that he had done it before. So flashback 30 or so years, the, the dominant culture is at a disadvantage because minority cultures, minorities have the advantage of we know our culture and we know them, right? But they only know them. We might go to see Schwarzenegger, but they don't necessarily come see our flicks. So we, we're forced to be bilingual, right? So when, the, when Sweetback came out and they reviewed it, they had the disadvantage of thinking, well, if, if I don't get it, it means it's bad or it doesn't work. So they, one of the reviewers said, well, the sound is garbled. Well, he didn't understand abonics. So he couldn't understand it. <laughs> but the concept that I can't understand it, everything's geared for you if you're the dominant culture. So, well, it doesn't work. The sound's garbled. It's bad technically. The other thing was the reviewers, who were mostly white, said that it was based on a false premise that police officers would beat up a black guy like that. So it, you know, that it was, was before camcorders. Son. Before camcorders, <laughs> so it was like fifteen or twenty years before the King incident. They, you know, so but everyone in the hood had a different. They were like, "Oh hell yeah, that goes down." Do you know what I mean? So they were at a disadvantage. So then they couldn't understand why it works. It makes fifteen million, and I, it was, I don't know if the price was a dollar or two dollars a ticket, but that's close to you know one hundred twenty million today. And that's a lot of bread for them not to understand. So they, after that, they said, we've got to get some niggerologists in here to understand this. <laughs> and they started hiring black folks and being aware of it. Now, you can't go to the mall without a white kid with his hat turned backwards and some, right. long, some baggy pants on. So at least they go, oh, okay, maybe I don't get it, but let me ask my son, JJ. Do, do you know what I mean? So I had an advantage in that now, culturally, we, we're a little bit more in the mix, do you know what I mean? The disadvantage I had was that they kept saying, you, if it's going to go this way, you've got to dumb it down, right? Or you've got to do it that. So that, that was my disadvantage, but I did have an advantage to where my dad was. And like I said, I did have the advantage that I could have a multiracial crew that had camera experience. It was an experienced, good, solid crew. Yeah, so I think it was easier, clearly, for me. Yeah. Okay, and I'll, uh, Mel, uh, just to, as the last thing, Melvin, I'll just ask you then, then what was the key, since the film g didn't get great reviews, you know, in the mainstream press and it didn't have the advantages of big advertising budget, it did become the number one film. So what, like, what was it that made it the top film? Like, what it was obviously the early sex scene. 
<laughs> there are a lot of people who were just thinking the way I was. The title could have been called The Ballad of the Indomitable Sweetback, but I'm with Marshall McLuhan that the medium is part of the message. And uh, that's why I call it Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And why the word song? Because I thought sound, the music sound, which I hadn't heard, the, the mixture of that music sound was also a possibility. And a no, a no holds barred. By, by the way, the, 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 that sex scene, the guy's name is Sweetback. Many people didn't even know where that word came from. And it's an old um, terminology where a, a pimp is called a Sweetback man because supposedly you make love with the action of your back. And that's why the woman calls him Sweetback and right. then bam, the titles come on. That's, the, that's all the, the origin of, of how the whole thing started. <laughs> and we had never seen sound like that, the use of color like that, the, the use of retribution like that, and the getting away like that. So all of those things, I, I would see by the second day, people would come into the theater with their lunch and sit through the show three times. It was such a cathartic experience. And one of the other things that I did which become ubiquitous now, since I had no money to, to advertise, and I didn't get a lot of bad reviews, actually, because I didn't get a lot of reviews. Uh, most, of the people, uh, most of the people refused. That's why I spelled the title, Badass, so that eventually they could run it, because otherwise they couldn't even say darn in the newspapers that time. And don't forget, the film was X-rated. But when the film received an X rating, because if you shoot a film in the United States, and you do not go to the Motion Picture Association, you have to take an automatic X. And when I went to the Motion Picture Association, there were just these, all these old white guys, and I said, I don't think you're a jury of my peers, and if you say you're here to protect the minds of young people, then you didn't protect my minds. So what about Tarzan and all these Yasa balls and so forth and so on? So I said, you have not been doing your job, so I won't submit to you. So I had to take an X. But then the entrepreneur, when they gave me an X, I put on the, on the, um, on the text, uh, rated X by an all-white jury. Hmm? <laughs> and I sold T-shirts, I made a fortune. Hmm? <laughs> but then he went ballistic. He said, well, that has nothing to do with it. I said, you're all white, ain't you? He said, yes. And since then, the Motion Picture Board has now had a more diversity. I mean, I know it's hard to, to, to step back to, to just the, the complete folly and the arrogance and the hubris of, well, it's this way. But it, it wasn't that way. And you can't, you can't win the war with, with clean gloves. Hmm. And th that was the battle. I, I, in not being facetious, I don't know which part of it. But... My life was on the line, and I thought that we had to do something in such a bold way because it didn't matter what the, post, what the paper said because the paper wasn't going to review it anyway. Yeah. didn't matter any of those things. Um, and then when I said, how am I going to do it? Well, I realized that a 15-second spot cost a lot of money, much more than I could afford. However, 
if I wrote a hit tune and named it Sweetback's Theme, and then the band played that tune and the DJs played that tune every time they played the tune for two minutes and 30 seconds free, hmm? I'd have the film advertised. Hello? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> now, now that seems just so natural, but before that, music was only used as an afterthought in um, in a film, the album would come out maybe two or three weeks, sometimes a month after, even if it's a Hollywood musical that they had, I mean, musical Hollywood had bought from um, from Broadway. And so now the use of music like that, I think that helped a great deal, and I think the 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 title helped a great deal. Okay, I got I got to add one thing. My son is in the movie. Right. He, he plays the little angel yeah. of inspiration with the wings. And there's a sequence where he's uh, bouncing on the bed in the beginning. And we were shooting that scene. I had gotten the camera on loan. And we were going to shoot that scene. And uh, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of time. The lady was going to kick us off the lawn. And we had to get the camera by, back by 6. And we hadn't broken for lunch. And everyone was getting irritable. And my son took off his wings and was going to go for lunch. And I heard this voice yell out. And the voice yelled out, Get back here, we had a deal. You're supposed to be in the movie. It's about a business. Get on the bed and start bouncing. <laughs> and it was my dad's voice. But my dad was in New York. And the voice was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and it's funny that 30 years later, you find yourself going, oh, I would never do that. And suddenly, there you are. <laughs> you know? But what I wanted to do was, in this movie, play the truth. I didn't want to play dad as good guy or bad guy, but play the truth. We're different people. We're different fathers. But, uh, but I, I came in that summer of 1970 to really respect what the brothers stood for and a lot of love. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.